You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. I actually got to have the whole stewardess voice thing happening, like in real life, at me um, recently because of because of doing flights and travel and stuff. And it was weirdly surreal. Um, I felt like felt like there was my my other calling, my other career, Patrick. Well, it it does remind me that uh, although you have the voice down, you don't really do the the hand gestures very well. No, and I mean we don't use the video in the broadcast, so it wouldn't quite translate in the same way. Yeah. But if we ever you know jump jump the shark into you know the youtube version of this podcast then sure absolutely i'll get like the it's big like, glowy sticks yeah. and i'll like an orange it's like, it's like we the, we don't re, yeah we don't even have like the mask falling down and you know pull. oh yeah please make sure this that is, you this, cover this. you cover yourself yeah. before you cover yeah. the guest um yeah. or, or as they say know. on southwest airlines uh if you're traveling with a child put your mask on first and then help them with theirs if you're traveling with two children pick your favorite now <laughs> Well, that is a good thing. We have just one guest um, to to help with the mask on here. We have Ray Naylor. Ray, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Really nice to be uh, here. Thank you, Tracy and Patrick, for having me. Oh, totally welcome. Don't worry. We don't anticipate having a random door fly off in the middle of Alaska or having a cabin depressurization. We're probably fine. Oh, this we is have, good to know. Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> we regularly maintenance those those bolts to make sure they're nice and tight on there. So. Mm-hmm. Your, your podcast was not manufactured by Boeing. It was not. Uh, definitely no. not. No. Although Boeing, Boeing does have a presence in Colorado, so I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have you, have so, you seen uh, the the uh, open the pod bay doors Hal uh, meme on the internet? Oh, oh God, no. no! Relative yeah, to so, the to the Boeing thing, no, I haven't. Yeah, so you've got to open the open the pod pod bay doors Hal. And it's like I can't do that. It says just pretend you're a Boeing Hal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh no! Oh oh burn! <laughs> the wildest thing about that, I mean, the wildest thing. Like, there's so many wild things about that story, right? Like, where does one even begin? It's just, it, it's it's turtles all the way down. Um, but the one of the wildest things about it is that they found two cell phones, like, on the ground in the yeah. kind of relative vicinity to where the door blew off, and like, and apparently they function. Yeah. So like I, I don't know. Um, that that seems like something that the the manufacturers of those specific cell phones should be leaning into real hard. Yeah. As like yeah, they should work that into their next Super Bowl ad or something. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're and, right there, right? <laughs> the 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 thing is though, uh, Tracy. The reason that those cell phones worked is because they weren't dropped in your bathroom, mm. uh, and and they weren't dropped in water. So. Yeah. Like Although you, I don't know, drop, I mean, it was Alaska. If it dropped yeah, into a snowbank, like how big of a bag of rice? It's different. Like if you drop, if you drop a phone from ten thousand feet, it's fine. If you drop it from three feet in a bathroom, it shatters and never works again. So, yeah, it's physics. That That's just how yeah. it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of far at this point from the whole uh, actually really for real, real introducing our guest thing. But I'll I'll see if I can behave myself a little bit more and wind ourselves back in that direction. So Ray, you're with us because just super recently, in fact, just the week that we are talking to you right now for recording purposes, your latest book, The Tusks of Extinction came out. Congratulations. Thank you. 
So um, I have the great honor of being the person who deals with lots of uh, emails from different people who are interested in coming on the podcast and like finding finding folks to join us and so on. And um, it took me like 0.8 seconds to respond <laughs> to the query that I got about tusks of extinction because it has the best premise for a transhumanist story I've seen in a hot minute. And now I need you to tell people about it. Ah, okay. So, uh, so the premise of the story is basically that the that Moscow brings the mammoth back, but that because species also have uh, cultures, the the recreated mammoths who, um, of course, are not completely real mammoths, right? They're sort of pieced together from mammoth DNA. Don't have a mammoth culture, and so they don't know how to be mammoths. Uh, and uh, so they take the downloaded uh, or uploaded mind of a murdered uh, expert in elephant behavior who died during elephant poaching 100 years before and insert it into the brain of one of these uh, mammoths to lead the, uh, the group to hopefully uh, better success with thriving in their new environment. So there I am. I am I am Dr. Demira, and I wake up kind of to the extent that an uploaded consciousness wakes up, whatever that that's a whole conversation unto itself. And I'm a mammoth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. So we've got we have what don't we have here? We have we have Jurassic Park kind of, mm-hmm. uh, but with the political espionage angles thereof and the the perhaps not entirely um transparent aims of the russian government in choosing to to go through with this this experimentation we have animals as as sapient and culture bearing we have uploaded consciousnesses um is there anything from like the SFNL bag of tricks that you were like, nah, I can't fit that one in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Gary Wolf says uh, about me that like Ray Naylor is is never satisfied with just one of the the big like SFNL uh, you know tropes. He has to put as many in them in there as possible. And I think that slaps the hood of the book. You can fit so many damn tropes in this thing right here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of it was like, I really wanted to turn turn that Jurassic Park concept kind of upside down, right? And, and get people rooting uh, more for the uh, for the animals than maybe for the, the people. That was a little bit of what the book was about. So this is like, I don't know, like there's, there's specifically whole articles that have been written about why this is a stupid question, but that assumes that I pay attention to what other people think are stupid. I, I have to wonder where, like, you're just like brushing your teeth one morning and you're like, mammoth consciousness and I'd be like how how did we get to this moment <laughs> I so I think that so so you know I think that in general all novel ideas for me are like four or five ideas that get squished together and you, what usually happens is I have one idea that I'm kind of ruminating on and then something gets stuck onto it and then something oh. Stuck onto it, and then finally it becomes like a novel idea, which is always like this kind of um, uh, aggregate of, of other ideas. So, I had worked as uh, as the environment, science, technology, and health officer in Ho Chi Minh City. I had worked on uh, elephant uh, poaching issues. There's a lot of elephant poaching and like involvement in the ivory trade going on from 
Vietnam to Africa and back. And I had also worked a lot on uh, on rhino horn and things like that. So I was sort of carrying that with me. And that was not pleasant work because you you were just sort of, you know, you're really just roll, rolling that rock uphill to have it roll back down on you. And, uh, and there's no end to yeah. that. And then I read a National Geographic article about um, the harvesting of mammoth tusks from the melting tundra and how this had become like a career basically for, for some people, especially in the far North and uh, was thinking about that. And, and then I stumbled across uh, one of these books on, on de-extinction and I was already interested in evolutionary issues and things like that. And I was thinking, well, how is de-extinction addressing all of these other things that we now know about evolution, like the epigenetics of evolution, the fact that animals have culture, that kind of thing. And how, do they plan on doing that? And it looked like a lot of them didn't really have any plans for the cultural side of things. And I said, well, that's, I thought to myself, that's really interesting because how does a mammoth that's never known a mammoth learn to be a mammoth, right? They're, they're, these, these are animals that learn from their parents. And so if you don't have any parents that know what it's like to be the thing you're supposed to be, how do you get there? And yeah, yeah. The sort of eureka moment of, aha, well, what if we did this and uh, that's that's kind of how I got there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to point out that I think at first blush, if, if somebody doesn't really sit back with that idea of how does an X know how to be an X, that it might seem like some kind of silly tautology to them. Mm-hmm. Like, like some sort of like, well, I mean, they know how to be an X because they are an X. They are definitionally an X or so whatever. Um, but if you think about it, and I'm kind of tagging you in here a little bit, Patrick, um, you see this actually as a phenomenon I think that people can relate more to in terms of rescue animals. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of rescue animals that have come from situations where they weren't socialized with other animals of their species. They weren't mm-hmm. socialized to interact with humans. Um, you know, they, they don't know how to distinguish between the behaviors of a domestic environment versus sort of a free range kind of feral environment. And I think if we, if those of us who are less familiar with or the idea of like animal culture were to kind of unplug from that term and I think kind of put it in the realm of what we see animals we take for granted every day in our lives doing, mm-hmm. I think then it kind of clicks a little bit. Like, you know, Patrick, you've had a long journey uh, with your dog Ronan's anxiety. Um, which has been provoked by lots of things over the course of his life well before you ever knew him. But I think this is a kind of a space where to some extent, like you have a dog that needed a home where he could learn how to dog. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And and learn that, that just because I'm leaving doesn't mean I'm never coming back or (laughs) that he's like, yeah. Cause, cause it used to be like he would freak out and I had to train him essentially you know, basically mm-hmm. go, okay, sit here. I'm going to walk out the door and then I'm going to count to 50 and then I'm going to come back in. And the next time I'm going to walk out the door, I'm going to count to 120 and then I'm going to come back in. And it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just like training them to know that uh, everything that they're freaking out over isn't something worth freaking out over. Like it's, it's all going to be good. And then I leave him for, you know, six hours to go to Colorado Springs for an event and when they come back, he loses his shit completely. Cause he's like, Oh my God, I thought you were dead. Yeah. No one can count that high. How did you do it? <laughs> I think we have a we have a tendency as as humans to think of animals as doing everything according to instinct, 
And, and that's really why, why we think that, that this, it's absurd to think that an animal wouldn't know how to be what it is. But I like to use the, a really simple way to explain the cultural element of, of species is I like to use the uh, yam washing monkeys example. If you, if you've ever heard this one. Before. I do not know this example. Yeah. So this, so there were uh, Japanese researchers who wanted to study a group of monkeys living on an island um, off the coast of, of Japan, one of the islands on the archipelago. And they wanted to lure the monkeys out of the forest where they were difficult to, to watch and get them on the beaches. So they would leave piles of yams on the beach. Well, the monkeys would come out to get the yams, but they didn't really like the yams that much because they were sandy and it was difficult to get the sand off of the yams. They would still eat them, but they weren't really enthusiastic about them until one of the monkeys took the yams down into the, took a yam into the water and washed it and then taught the other monkeys to wash yams. And now it's been 50 years or so of scientists coming back to this island and that original monkey passed away some time ago, but all of the monkeys immediately pick up the yams that are piled on the beach by the scientists, go down into the water and wash them. But they don't just wash yams. The monkeys play in the water. They learn to swim. They, uh, they splash around and have fun. They also pick things up from the water. They, they, are, they catch the occasional fish, etc. So they've evolved a new culture. And if you, you can imagine, just if you came in at this moment and you saw these yam-washing monkeys, you would think that the washing of yams might be an instinct. But if you know the history of it, you understand that actually one of the monkeys established a new culture of washing yams and and then being in the water and actually being yes. semi-aquatic and, and all of these other things. And and over time, that, that culture of being around the water may evolve into something entirely new that doesn't have anything to do with yams. Like the yams could go away, but the aquatic part of playing in the water and being on the shore might stay. And so I think that's a really good, a good way to sort of wrap your head around the importance of, of culture, right? If a mm-hmm if another monkey was introduced into that, that island uh, of yam washing monkeys and their culture, it would have to learn how to do the things that they did. And it might be identical genetically, but it wouldn't be identical culturally. Right. Yeah. That, that's pretty amazing. And uh, a little known fact about that first monkey that washed the yams is that that monkey was named Anakin Skywalker. Uh, he, just, <laughs> he just hated the sand so much. <laughs> So as soon as you mentioned sand, Rick, I had like a countdown timer in my head and I'm like, Patrick is just waiting. He's, yeah. he's just biding his time. Got to make that Annie. Got to make that Annie joke. Gotta, it's gotta be done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just yesterday, just yesterday I sent a, a, a meme. Uh, there's the meme with it. It's Padme and, and Anakin. And like they always do, like they always have it. And yeah. uh, in this particular one, Padme is going, do you want to go see Dune? And, uh, Anakin's like the movie about the sand, the movie about the fucking sand. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> I you sent know, that to uh, some folks yesterday. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, again, yeah, it was your point eight second to to turn around, sort of electronic <laughs> moment right there. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, kind of thinking about so going with the yam washing monkey thing as as a kind of basis for unpacking what we mean by by animals both having a culture and evolving a culture that that isn't 
it's not hardwired into them. It's it's learned and it's it's developed. It cooks. Um, that says to me that one of the particular challenges that you had set up for yourself in writing this book would would be having to kind of sit back and say, but okay, seriously, like if a mammoth just sort of sprang into being, what would it need to know? And like what what would that how might that map onto what we know about elephants? And what would a responsible researcher of pachyderm behavior attempt to introduce as a and so there must have been a lot of in the behind the scenes world of imagining how to build this story, there must have been a lot of just kind of breaking down the logic of how would this even go? There was a, there was a lot of it. And, uh, you know, I sort of, I mean, the way that I work as a writer, I think is that I follow my own curiosities and I sort of am, I say that in between books, I'm like a Fox, right. And I'm sort of, uh, you know, the Fox and the hedgehog kind of, uh, uh, idea that a fox knows a lot or a little about a lot of things and a hedgehog knows a lot about one thing. And so I sort of, I, I think of myself as a fox in between books. I'm sort of sniffing around in the nonfiction sections of the, of the bookstore, looking at the things that I'm interested in and kind of plucking science books off the shelf and thinking, well, you know, what about this concept attracts me? And then when I catch on to something and I start the process of writing the book, then I become like a hedgehog and I start drilling down into into these things. And it, you know, it, it usually takes reading. I mean, I think the mountain and the sea probably took reading a hundred books, you know, the, the research. And then, uh, and I think that the tusks of extinction was benefited from some of that research, which carried over into this. So it was more like reading another 30 or 40 books on elephant yeah. behavior and on evolution and on, you know, uh, mammoths and, and I mean, everything you can think of, but I, I think one of the, so one of the things that we forget about de-extinction quite often, if you but, but you'll realize when you dig into the science, is that anything that is brought into the world according to the science that we have now or are developing now is only about half what it should be. So if you're going to make a mammoth, you're never going to get a mammoth. What you're going to get is something that is about half mammoth and then half its foster mother, who is going to be an elephant's DNA. And so first out of the, out of the gate, it's not a mammoth. It's a, it's a new species. It might have mammoth characteristics, but technically it isn't what it used to be. It's an oliphant. Yeah. Right. Right. So right. It's, it's kind of got, it's got what it's, it's got sort of a mix of DNA. Right. And then, you know, as we're saying, like, you're not, some of the things it may not know, for example, is it may not know that it can survive in the cold. Right. Um, because, because mammoths have, you know, their blood has been adapted to, 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 uh, to do that, but it may not feel that it can. It might be frightened of the environment that it finds itself in um, because it doesn't have that culture of being in that environment. It may not understand. Uh, one of the things that kind of gets talked about in the book is like how to find grass under the snow, right? And, <laughs> and things like that. And what kind of sort of the power of a human, right, is that we can learn and store this information even when we don't experience it ourselves so so even if we never have been to that environment we can read a bunch of books about that environment and at least understand the things that we need to do when we get there right and that would be a big advantage but a mammoth just doesn't have that no animals yeah. have that symbolic language where they can carry information yeah. no travel guides no no photos packing guides yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. 
So that, I mean, inevitably that leads, thinking about all that research that you did to, like, is there some particularly cool elephant thing where you're like, oh my God, I have to work with this in some way in the book? Or or even if it hit the cutting room floor, like I'm always kind of interested in like the cool factoids of the of the creative process. There were two really neat things about, about elephants that I learned that I didn't know. And one was about this organ in the top of an elephant's mouth that it actually, that seems to be attached to its memory where it will, an elephant will do this thing where it, it, for example, in the wild will touch dung, elephant dung that it finds with its trunk and then taste it and then sit there and, and, and seem to be thinking like swaying and clearly sort of remembering Right. And like and kind of like taking in this information, what they think it's doing is it if it's met an elephant before it can, you know, use that sense or that taste uh, to to remember who that elephant was and its past interactions with the elephant, whether they were hostile, you know, what kind of uh, relationship it had. And then and then the elephant will decide, according to having tasted this other elephant, whether to like follow it and try to find where it is. Right. Oh, wow. And maybe have a new encounter with it or avoid it, you know, et cetera. So so this this organ uh, in its mouth appears to be I mean, this is, you know, a lot of this, like a lot of science is, is kind of, you know, just evolving, always evolving theory. But it appears to be really closely connected to memory. And I loved that mm-hmm. because, of course, you know, human smell is so closely connected to our memories and some of our deepest memories where they're connected to to smells. And so forging that kind of connection between Demira's memories as a human being and the strong evocation of memories that come that would come from having that tool in your mouth to better remember things by, right, was, was one really neat thing. And then the other thing was um, that elephants appear to be able to communicate across miles of distance by um, vibration that is carried through the ground into their bones. And so they're listening to other elephants far away with their feet. And part of what they do is rumble and create this kind of vibration in the ground in there. So they create a rumbling sound and they sort of push that sound into their, into their, the ground to talk to other element elephants that are further away. And I thought that was just an amazing thing that had to end up in the book. It does. Wow. That's like the coolest version of the two soup cans with a string. Right. Like, yeah, like it's so much more sophisticated, yeah. actually. Like, and I, I wouldn't string, mind. Right? Yeah, the whole memory organ trick thing I could see being really useful for me at cons if it didn't involve poop. Um, right. Yeah, that's yeah the like the, the poop is a non-starter for me, but, right. you know, they're definitely there's definitely that thing where I go to a con or a party or a work thing and I'm like, hey, you, you, Howard, <laughs> you. The bad thing, the bad thing about, the bad thing about, the bad thing about cons though is like someone walks up and says, "Hey, how's it going?" Blah blah. blah. It's been so long. And you're like, "Yeah," and then you ultimately do the eye flick down to their badge. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. You just see really got to hope that they hope they're looking the other way at that moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the 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 tasting of the poop thing actually did bring to mind an episode of Star Trek Lower Decks, uh, where they they ha- they're having to they're having to track on this planet, and the head of security like walks up and just sticks his hand in some poop, and uh, he's oh it's fresh, and then he like tastes it. And he's like yeah, this is a such and such, and and the lower deckers are like. 
Uh, no, you don't. Know, no, no. Oh, 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 you did it. Oh, 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 you did it. You did it. Oh, uh, I can't believe you did. Like, and they're freaking out. And then they cut away. And when they cut back, like he's running along and he finds another pile and he's like, oh, here's some more. And, and they're like, yeah, but we're on the right trail. You don't need to. Oh, oh, you did it again. Oh, oh. Like, and he just like keeps tasting it as he's tracking this creature. It's absolutely hilarious and gross at the same time. I think the dude's telling on himself a little bit there. He's really there for Ah, oh, it's fresh. <laughs> yeah, the, poop, the poop's a bit of a non-starter, I have to admit, for, for me, too. Uh, although, I mean, maybe like most animal poop seems to be like not as awful as human poop, which really makes you wonder about us as a species. Like, you notice this, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think if an animal, you know, barring being like, for instance, going back to the idea of strays or things and feasting off of, of garbage or whatever they can find, um, if an animal's in its natural environment and is eating what it's supposed to be eating, it's probably got a more optimized poop. <laughs> than human beings who just, yeah. you drive down the street and there's just like 10,000 terrifyingly awful but probably tasty options for yeah. us to so afflict ourselves with. And, and yeah. interestingly enough, to stay on the poop topic, because... I mean, really <laughs> because yes, we need to. to. <laughs> yeah. It is the it is the elephant in the room, so... <laughs> oh no, oh Patrick <laughs> Louise, you did that. Oh. <laughs> A lot, a lot of, of infant animals will eat uh, their mother's poop, and it appears to be a way for them to learn what to eat later. They, it's kind of coding uh, for them what they will what they will eat when they're separated. Oh, so like animals that aren't with like wine small. tasting. Yeah, I yeah. detect a faint note of of, <laughs> of alfalfa grass right. and and stream water. Yes, yes, I oh. shall have this again. Exactly. Oh, you you had you had corn. You had corn recently. Yeah, uh, it's always corn. It's always corn. This is, this is for example before they before they leave the the nest and then they'll eat specifically the things that their mothers ate. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, can we can we stay on poop? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess we 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 could. Um, you know, this is probably a, a real good time to issue a formal apology to one of our, <laughs> our longtime listeners, Cannoli Joe. Um, you're probably brushing your teeth right now um, and brushing them ever harder, uh, just trying to sort of scour out the, the possibility of, of internalizing this. At, at, you know, usually we talk about food and we end up making him hungry. So uh, I guess this is just going to offset. So you're welcome. Um, we're trying to help you here. This is this is our gift to you. So, <laughs> so I, I I do kind of want to take a turn here for a moment, if you if you don't mind, because I've been thinking a lot about the fact that you've done so much work in foreign service that has put you all over the world in different places, and that in an interview you did a while back with Asimov's, you kind of talked about. Uh, they asked you the question of like where of all these places you've been, where where have you felt sort of like most. Um, out of place and probably expecting a very different answer. You, you answered in California where you grew up. Um, and this, this sort of feeling of being sort of out of place in the place that you were supposed to be. And it's a bit of a truism that I think writers are affected by their experiences and those experiences show up in one way or another in the things that they create. But this feels to me like it would be a particularly salient kind of core memory if you're trying to write a story that involves a character who is 
literally out of place in the sense of what what species she's meant to inhabit. Like she has to some extent the right knowledge, but to some extent entirely the wrong knowledge. And I'm sort of wondering if that if there's a little bit of a, a reflection of that in the situation you've put Demira in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that I I think a lot of writers probably write out of a some sense of alienation, right? Some sense of like wanting more from um, from the culture they grew up in, or, or feeling a sort of on the on the outside. It's certainly something that a lot of them talk about as as holding in common. But um, you know, being overseas, you you certainly learn a lot about not knowing the things that you need to know to thrive in in that environment. Like just being very wrong about about things and. It's really useful experience. I, I, I think one of the most useful experiences I had was going into the Peace Corps in, in Turkmenistan and being 27 years old and being treated like a four-year-old, right? And <laughs> and just being a fool so often that it kind of ground your ego away after a while and you learned to laugh at yourself because like you just were going to make mistakes. There wasn't any chance of like not going, you know, having like egg on your face every day, right, of... of not saying the, the, the right things and um, or not or not saying the wrong things. And so I think I think yeah, it, you I sort of collected a lot of that material maybe uh, and I use it when when I am looking to kind of give that sense of that realistic sense of being out of place to to a character. Um, it's it's a, you know, characters are really interesting when you, when you write them. I feel like they're always two things at once. Number one is they're based on people that you, that you met or know or encountered in your life or even in, you know, including in books, like characters are based on other characters. I think that's something people don't talk, talk about enough. Like you read or you, you see characters in, in film or in a play and you use that kind of material in your work, but then they're always a partially you. Right. It's always a piece of yourself. And and that's really like because that's the only resource, that's the only well that you really have to draw on that's always there for you is your own feelings. And so the more you can be honest, maybe about uh, about those past situations and the way they made you feel and the deeper you can reach into them, uh, the more compelling you can make your characters and I find that usually I know that I have made a character very compelling when it's like extraordinarily painful to write a scene you know <laughs> and and feels like a like like personal um, mm-hmm. and there were definitely scenes in the Tusks of Extinction especially with Demira where I felt like she and I were so closely connected in the way we felt about our childhoods and things like that that writing those scenes were, were was very affecting for me you know, I had to stop like many times and then kind of take a breath and, mm-hmm. and go on because I was pulling, drawing from that well. So, so that's the really long answer. The short answer is yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I think that we've kind of cracked open a lot of stuff here. I think this, this, maybe this is a good moment for us to take the cleansing breath that is the picks of the week. Picks of the week. Ta-da. All right. Um, So, hey, Patrick, what's your pick? My pick this week is the Disney Plus show Echo. Okay. And I am a 
I'm a fan of most of what has gone on with Disney Plus stuff. Uh, Echo was something that I was looking forward to. I wasn't sure exactly what they were going to do with the character, how it was going to work into things. And I, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that they, they are kind of using it to embrace the grittier Netflix shows that happened a while ago that yeah. uh, they, even though they're available on Disney plus, it's like, you know, they're playing with the multiverse thing kind of and saying that maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't uh, as part of the secret timeline. But now with they, they dropped five episodes of echo. I don't want to give a lot of spoilers because uh, as an example, one of our patrons Stace, I don't think has watched it yet. And he's really excited for it, but this is not a spoiler. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is back as Kingpin, playing the same character that he played in the uh, original Daredevil shows and or series. And and he's just really, really good. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly. Uh, Alakwa Cox, I think, is the actress who plays Echo. And she's really, really good in this. And I, it's just... it. It felt like going back to that original Netflix Daredevil show. Like it was very gritty. There was there was there was violence. There was blood. The action sequence was amazing. The very first fight that you get, which made me like lose my shit, which is part of the theme of the show, apparently shit. But uh, I lost my shit during the, the the initial fight scene that they have in the first episode because it was so similar and reminiscent of those Netflix one shot fight sequences that he would do, you know, where he's like going down the corridor and he's fighting all the guys and they do it in one shot. It was so like that, that it, it just made me go, Oh, okay. They're going there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah. you add in the, the participation of the Choctaw nation and, and all this stuff and, and the history and, and uh, just, it, it, there's a lot in those five episodes, and I was very, very happy with it. Uh, it, it. It seemed to go by too quick for me. Uh, there was definitely a couple of moments where, again, I lost my shit and I squeed. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was definitely worth the time uh, to go watch that. It's Echo, and, again, it's on Disney+. Plus. Fantastic. All right. So, so Ray, what has brought you joy? Um, the, the new Miyazaki film, The Boy and the Heron. Oh, uh, I've been hearing so much about that. It's, it's really amazing. And I, I, there's two things in particular that I really love about it. One thing that I love about it is that, um, he took this chance to make all of these references to like what a Miyazaki film is. And The Boy and the Heron clearly consists of all of the things that one thinks of as belonging in a Miyazaki film from like the the wind to the like, you know, the, the, the loss of a parent and the moving to the countryside and the, and the, the ruined building in the forest. And the, you know, all of those things are there and, and really wonderfully done. But what he also uh, does that I thought was just amazing is that he makes it clear that this is his tempest, right? Um, this is, this is his moment to put himself as an artist and as a creator with this long career behind him into one of his own films and, and show this artist trying to create a beautiful world and being sort of foiled by the forces of greed 
and and trying to balance and push back against those and it's just really beautiful uh really really well done um i was pretty mesmerized from beginning to end and it is also like the best miyazaki films super weird with some images that are just like the, you're like i never thought i would see that like that is just the strangest thing that anyone could come up with and he's so he's so good at that so uh, there were there were lots of moments like that too, where you were just man, I love this. I love how creative he's able to be, and, and the way that that specifically animation allows you to, uh, to to be creative. I've always kind of said that you know some of the best science fiction films are are animation are done in, with animation because it allows you to create this whole universe and do it quite easily compared to trying to do it you know with live action. It's brilliant. That's fantastic. Oh. And Ray, I, I will take this moment to, to to reiterate something that I talked about so much on this show that I don't think Tracy wants me to talk about anymore. Uh, Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix. Mm. Have you seen that? No, I have not. You need to go watch that. Okay. <laughs> it's an amazing, it's an amazing show. It's, the four-year-old can't watch it with you, though. That's not no, four-year-old yeah. can't watch it, uh, but it's animated and it and it draws from so many things that came before it, and it's it's just a fucking awesome show. Cool, cool. Uh, and they have already dropped a teaser, just a teaser that says season two is coming. So I'm I'm very excited for season two. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So um, in the background in days. So I, I had to do. Yeah. I mean, th- now you've got you can check it off your to do list for today. Yeah. It's all it's already right there. Um, as Ray was talking in the background, I was probably baffling uh, everyone who's seeing me on the video right now because um, I willingly lifted a cat, particularly Seuss, into my lap here. But that's because Seuss was about trying to jump into my lap. And Seuss oh. is very bad at jumping. Um, <laughs> he's he's actually very bad at being a cat, period. We're fairly sure he's actually a possum that crawled into a cat suit as a way of getting inside of a home. Um, or, or, so, maybe, or maybe maybe Seuss was raised by possums and he's just being – It's true. Like, he's, he's he might have possum culture. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't know how to cat. Um, so in any case, I had to pull him up into my lap because he was not going to not jump. And if he jumped, he was going to knock over the, the microphone. And then I was putting him in my lap and trying to pet him. And then he bit me really hard. And so I had to like go the other way and go like, ah. And so it's been um, – I have enjoyed hearing about the Miyazaki film because it was the only peaceful thing that happened to me in the last minute. Because um, it's just been pure violence over here on my side of the United States. So I I don't usually do two picks, but I'm going to do two picks and they've got very different energy and I I just I'm going to do it. And so the the first pick that I'm going to do is uh has to do with what I was doing before I made my trip to the Navajo Nation recently, uh which was, you know, playing games that I got for Christmas with my fams. And so if you are interested in cooperative games but have also been interested in legacy games, May I and Legacy, for those of you who aren't familiar, refers to a type of board game where the board conditions change permanently over time. So you might, for instance, have certain cards in a deck that get trashed where you put them aside and under certain conditions you can never use those cards again. You might discover a space on the map that didn't exist before and have to pull out a literal Sharpie to like put a sticker on it and name it yourself and all these sorts of other things. And so a Legacy game is a game where... It kind of threads the needle a little bit between 
an RPG experience that you might have getting together with your friends on the regular where you're crafting something unique between and among yourselves and a board game experience that has very clear sets of rules and no one has to kind of tank themselves as, as DM or anything like that. And so we started playing Clank Legacy, the Acquisitions Incorporated set. So if the whole Acquisitions Incorporated narrative space has has been a place that you've been entertained by before, uh, the folks who make the board game Clank uh, licensed with the Acquisitions Incorporated folks to create basically a Dungeons & Dragons-y feeling type of RPG game where you're going through trying to collect goodies of various kinds and acquire stuff as part of having a charter as a member of Acquisitions Incorporated and you and the other players are doing this work together. And so it's been Husbeast and Deirdre and Corwin and me playing it for the last several sessions and we've had a really good time. It's been really interesting seeing how they designed the game to kind of open up and unfold over time and it's going to have a lot of layers to it and, and last us a really long time the game itself is not super complex so even if all of this sounds to you like whoa this this seems very complicated ish and the box is very heavy the box is very heavy because it's got a bunch of super cool components in it that you are totally going to enjoy the game itself takes all of like 10 minutes to teach and you'll be cool so highly recommend if you have a group of people you like to get to play with on the regular that you check out the Clank Legacy Acquisitions Incorporated game, one of our good I, Christmas I, picks. And I will throw it out that one of the D&D games that I play is an Acquisitions Incorporated game. So we are, right. we are a franchise of the, the main office. <laughs> yep, there you go. Uh, and, and, and off doing her thing. Yeah. Yep, so, yep. It's an interesting and then, world to play. Uh, yeah. My other pick is as far away from that as you can possibly imagine. So the school where I teach, cue the music, Patrick, but this, <laughs> I know now, the school where I teach, it does this thing called intercession, which is a period of a couple of weeks in between the first and second semester, where we do kind of unusual classes and programming and stuff for students. And this particular year, I was uh, a chaperone for students on a service learning trip that they did. And the trip that we did, we organized with a group called Amazaji. Uh, Amazaji uh, group is based out of Pittsburgh, um, but they are an international organization that does fair trade service learning. Um, and I think that's really an interesting thing and worth people finding more about. Uh, the idea behind a fair trade service learning is that as opposed to some organizations, like for instance, church mission trips uh, that come into different environments and sort of say, we are going to do these things for you slash to you slash in your space. Um, and you can have this work done by us if you also accept these leaflets or if you, you know, go to our revival ceremonies at the end of the day or whatever else. Um, the idea behind a fair trade service organization is it has people who work for the Amazaji group who are part of the community and they identify within the community what their actual needs are and direct you towards that sort of work. So it's really the community itself that is your bosses. You just sort of show up and you're like, Point us in a direction. In this particular trip, we did to the Navajo Nation. Uh, we were in Tuba City, Arizona, um, where the people of both the Navajo and the Hopi Nations uh, hosted us. And my students got to learn a lot of really important stuff um, that came largely from the fact that the organization that was shepherding us there and parenting us there was interested in making the group of people um, and their culture and their needs, what the trip was really about, as opposed to kind of um, tourism with, with you know, 
shovels and tools and stuff. So if that's something that you've ever had an interest in, either for yourself or for loved ones, um, then I highly recommend that you check out amazaji.org. That's A-M-I-Z-A-D-E.org. All right. Oof. This has been a real journey. We've had we've had service learning and cool Marvel shows <laughs> and, you know, Miyazaki and poop. And of course, elephants and mammoths, um, which, you know, to be honest, anytime you sort of bring up poop, it's super tempting to go in the pachyderm direction anyway. So, Ray, you've brought us so much. Where can we find you out there in the wide, wide world of the interwebs and, and real life and all sorts of fun stuff? So I have a website, raynealer.net, raynealer.com will redirect there as well. And uh, people can get most of the short stories that I've published there or links to the ones that are in online magazines like Clark's World or Nightmare or Lightspeed that I want to support by not offering my story at my own website, but instead pushing them back to those websites. So they can get a lot there. Uh, You can also find me on Instagram, on Facebook, if that's your preference, on Blue Sky or on Threads right now. I've dropped the old uh, place for The artist formerly known as Twitter. Yes. Yes, Yeah. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I'm still there, but in an extremely ghosted, have not actually posted anything yeah. way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have yeah. an account. It's all blacked out. I don't post anything. It's just mm-hmm. sort of so that someone else doesn't take it. And I'm kind of, yeah, I was hanging out. On the a- off chance that it resuscitates itself into a viable space again. Yeah. It's so sad, really, because I yeah. had a lot of friends on there. And it's a mm-hmm. yeah, Like it's real sad. friends. All right. Well, it's been awesome talking to you, Ray. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Patrick. It's really been great to talk. And so it came to pass that one year shall end and a new year shall begin. Welcome, dear listeners, to the year 2024. Will it be a better year than its predecessor? Only time will tell. My new dual monitor mount thingy for my desk toppled over and sent my coffee cup over the edge, splashing coffee all over my desk, my clothes, the carpeted floor beneath my feet. Looking a lot like 2023 there, 2024. Hey, have you ever heard of Beyond the Trope? They've got a podcast just like we do, only they have announced it will be ending on their 10th anniversary, which makes me sad. But Giles and Michelle have planned to go out with a bang-up list of guests you won't want to miss. So go check them out, Beyond the Trope. Also, I win. Also, also... For us, don't forget to share this episode with your own friends, and if you haven't already done so, check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash functional nerds. If you like what we do, feel free to toss us a couple of bucks a month to help pay the bills. Also, 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 like us, or give us a star or a review on your preferred podcast platform, wherever you're grabbing episodes from or streaming. It helps, and we appreciate it. Now, did you know that in the 1960s, the CIA tried using cats to gather intel on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies? They equipped the cats 
with battery-operated microphones and antenna to record data. I wonder how that turned out. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Hello, Patrick. It is I, Clayface. Okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> When someone comes up to me and says, hey, I really love what you do. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.